0: Hello, this is Joy Gilfill and host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects and consequences on their family, friends and taxpayers. Listeners discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences discussed for taxpayer education and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. I would like to welcome everyone to today's call. The main topic is the paradox of perceptions, predicaments, and common sense. We have three guests on the call today, Irene Morgan, Shanae Kelts, and Debbie David. If you would each please say hello in, in turn and briefly share what you've learned from working in the field, you've each gotten totally different viewpoints on how the justice system works. So if you could share in just a few words, what your point of view is, it would really help the audience to understand the, the wealth of knowledge and perspectives that we're bringing to the conversation today. Irene, would you start?
1: Yeah, thank you, Joy. I'm really excited about being able to, to speak my truth from from my perspective. And I'm founder of the Restorative Community Coalition, where I've been doing direct services in reentry and restorative justice for over 15 years. During this time, I've developed innovative programs in mentoring, court navigation, case management, and and many others while advocating for prevention and justice system reform. My intent is to bring together the resources to build the Restore Life Center for Housing, Recovery, Employment and Education, and Rehabilitation along with a sustainable working farm where people where our clients can actually learn where their food
0: comes from and how it's grown <laughs> and and to interact with the natural forces of nature. Awesome. Irene, thank you so much. Shanae, let's have you go next.
2: Sure. Hi, Joy, for having me on the podcast today. My name is Shanae Kelts, and my experiences being a inmate inside the jail system and the prisons and transforming myself outside of the prison into a working, contributing member of society doing work in nonprofit organizations for domestic violence, substance abuse, alcoholism, and family treatment court, working one-on-one with clients to enable them for success and empowerment through our connections with our past is what's important to me. And that's why I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you so
0: much, Shanae. And Debbie David, what's up with you?
3: Hi, Joy, thanks so much for hosting this. It's exciting to be among these, you all amazing women. And my name is Debbie David, as Joy said, and I grew up in a law enforcement family. My mother uh, full-time, my father part-time. Worked in Department of Corrections while raising my family. My children are grown up. I had a partner who was um, in, in the prison system but also had severe mental health issues. And now I have grandchildren with developmental disabilities, and I'm concerned for their future. So I'm here today to bring issues forward that I I have seen and experienced myself.
0: Excellent. Debbie, you know, I'm going to take a little bit more time with you because on a previous episode, we asked, or I asked, Sinead and Irene both, why are you willing to come and talk on a show like this about such difficult subjects as incarceration, punishment systems, mental illness, and all these things. You know, why in the world would you put yourself out there to talk publicly about issues that most people want to hide and are private? So why does it matter to you that you're participating in this process?
3: Well, Joy, that's an excellent question, and I know we can do better. I've seen (laughs) where we can do better, and we must do better our current system is is creating more harm than it is any level of positive change and we can do this with minor in my perspective minor changes but part of it is showing up using our voices showing that where errors are occurring not being afraid to call them out and say hey i'm sure this might be an oversight this doesn't even belong in this this file. This is not pertinent to this particular case. So, um, minor things can make a major difference in an individual's life. I'm I'm very concerned as a grandmother having two developmentally disabled young grandchildren, and knowing that in our country, five hundred and fifty thousand adults with intellectual disabilities. Are in our prison system right now. Wow, that, that means individuals with Down syndrome, autism. That's that is not mental health uh, categorization. That is specific developmental disabilities. As children, those individuals get special services and support from our state governments. Why do we have this number that are ending up in prisons? I've yeah, had. A-
0: So what you're saying is that those 500,000 that you're talking about are the people who are in the prisons with these developmental disabilities. They need help, but that's separate from the mental health problems that we've got. And what is failing within our systems from the beginning that put all those people into prison in the first place? Is that what you're saying?
3: Exactly. And I actually was, um, was a part of supporting an individual with and an intellectual disability in one of my um, jobs as a community sports specialist who was in a supported work program and the other co-workers that worked with this young person uh, but young adult um, violated the they were aware of how the program was supposed to work and they knew what this young man's triggers were and either was an by mistake and oversight, whatever it was, they did not follow this program and triggered um, this individual who reacted because he's overwhelmed. He's stressed. It was known that he could physically react to something if he was over overwhelmed and he Mm -hmm. did act out and he laid hands on another person, not, to severely injure, but just, you you can't touch another person without their permission, without that being um, actually against the law. And this young, yes, young, uh, developmentally disabled man was arrested and charged with a felony.
0: Wow. That, so, so how does it feel working with stuff like that when you were born and raised in a justice system family? I mean, what happened between that early childhood, your your early adulthood, and then now working at this level. So what happened? Step back there for a minute and give us a difference in why, you know, why does it matter that you're speaking from those perspectives as well?
3: Yes. As um, an 18 year old, I was deputized and became matron in the jail and the the very small community that I lived in and witnessed um, how a a classmate of mine was handled when they were brought into the jail. She had been distraught apparently, and um, she was picked up on what they called back then a female mental pickup. So I I knew this young woman from high school and had seen her on the bus uh, frequently in in tattered and, and soiled clothing. I'd frequently see her with bruises she was very quiet and often withdrawn. That was my knowledge of her before this situation happened. I saw how officers interacted with her and it just it disturbed me deeply. Um, she wasn't doing anything to resist them, but she was extremely upset, stressed, traumatized, yet they were trying to force her to do something that she was uncomfortable doing, which was be handcuffed and then uncuffed and put in a cell. Um, I raised this issue with my mother, who was also a deputy and had been for a number of years. And she told me at that time that they just didn't have programs in place to adequately deal with what issue was presenting with this woman. And I carried that with me for a lot of years, not knowing what to do about it, but knowing this this way of dealing with people in distress was absolutely wrong and was not helping anyone or anything.
0: So it sounds to me like there was a piece that happened when you grew up in a justice system in, form, in a justice system family, you were proud to be part of the justice system, proud enough to want to go into a career to follow your parents, right? And then mm-hmm. Bec- and then shortly after being in the in the system, suddenly there was a switch that happened, and you went, "Oh my gosh, something's wrong here."
3: Absolutely, it was not the perception that I'd had at all. Right. Being the the daughter of my mother, who was a very compassionate, patient, gentle, and nurturing person, and uh-huh. to see that was. It was very shocking to to me, and I can't imagine the horrible experience this young woman um, lives with, probably for the rest of her life.
0: So this was a formative time for you, because then it sounds like you went from that experience into administration at the Department of Corrections to to try to make and to change things, because you knew what it should be. You knew what it was and what's the problem in the middle. And so you went in there to discover how that worked. Is that what happened?
3: Well, the program that I was um, blessed to be able to administer was, um, it was the first of its kind in Wisconsin. It was um, designed to allow victims and witnesses of felony crimes be able to write a letter to the parole board to share what impact this incident um, that this person um, was convicted of and serving time for, the impact that that had on their lives, on their families. And that letter then the parole board would take into consideration before allow before allowing parole for this particular offender. And I was excited because about being part of this program to roll it out and implement it because it was the first time that, um, victims could have a voice, uh, and also giving the offender an opportunity to, uh, it, it, I guess it, it might be the early component to restorative justice, which I didn't even know existed at the time that I was working in this program, which was in the late 80s. Uh, but I started to see many other problems while I was present in this system, uh, rolling this program out. I saw it. Errors, clerical errors that were dramatically negatively impacting the inmates that were held in prisons in Wisconsin. That was another huge red flag and a heads up for me.
0: So that's an amazing background that you bring to the table today. When we start talking about um, how how these paradoxes of perceptions mess with our minds when we look at criminal justice we look at the criminal justice system we have these ideas about it should be but there are actually some serious predicaments that that we end up in as human beings working in the system or as human beings involved in the system or as human beings trying to help people get out of the system so thank you very much debbie we're going to go on to the next question and i'm going to have each one of you answer that question about what is a paradox, a perception, or a predicament that you would like to illustrate on today's call that is specific to your experience of working in the in the system, when or being in the system, or helping people out of the system? Irene, why don't you start? What's a what's a story or a perception that you want to speak to? Thank you, Joy. I have so many, but I've I've been able to.
1: Focus down and tell the story about my realization uh, in um, two thousand and eleven when I realized i've all, no matter who we've talked to, and I 've talked to many, many people, judges, attorneys, defenders, everyone clerks that are in the system making their living by the system, they all know the system is broken. Everyone,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. every, every single person knows and has said, yep, it's broken, but we don't know what to do about it. Yep. So what happened, Joy and I went down to Olympia to meet with Senator Carroll, who was helping us try to figure out the, solution to the offender badge. That's a whole nother story that we'll get into some other time. And um, DOC, Department of Corrections and Department of Transportation was there. I'm sorry, Department of Licensing. And so we had our meeting, the second meeting, and we were on our way back. And one of the, before we left, one of the, the women that I've known for several years by that time was so exasperated with me because she just, she couldn't get up. She couldn't understand why we were there and complaining about this offender badge thing. And because the, the, then the, everyone released from prison, if they did not have, if they had been in long enough so that their uh, driver's license or IDs were uh, expired, they had to release with their offender badge, the same badge that they wore in prison. And it was a brand new badge. The only thing different was they had to sign this badge. It had their picture on it, had their DOC number on it, and it says offender badge. That's what they were released with from prison to start life anew. With a $40 check, they could not use the badge. Uh, the, uh, The banks would not allow that piece of ID even though the Department of Corrections says it's not an ID. So anyhow, that's, she was so exasperated with me because I just couldn't understand why that wasn't adequate because they had this process and all they have to do. And she did that three times in my face with her hands, palms up. All they have to do, Irene. And, and so we got in the car and started home. I'm driving. And we're heading north. It's a three-hour drive down and a three-hour drive back. So we're headed headed back home in heavy traffic, and I start pounding on the steering wheel. And poor Joy, I thought she was going to have a heart attack because I'm pounding the steering wheel. And I said, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it, Joy. I got it. The system works for the system. They have this template. And... You just stamp the template out, a piece of paper, and then you fill in the blanks. And this is the way it works. I don't care what system it is, and and especially D O C. And I, I felt I was so euphoric. It was just, <laughs> 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 it was just, it was like I had, I, I, it's like I'd been bombed by heaven or
0: something because I had finally figured this out. So and, we were driving. And so <laughs> Let me say this. We were driving at like 60 to 70 miles an hour down the freeway as she's banging on the steering wheel and I'm that's why I'm looking at her like what have you done you've like you, you're like off the rails. But what she was talking about is that that woman in the system working for the system in charge of creating the plan her idea was they get out with this prison idea all they have to do quote unquote All they have to do is go to the driver's licensing office and ask them to present a paper that should be in the email system and they should be able to get their ID. But the point that Irene was making is when you get out of prison, you don't have money to buy an ID. You don't know where the Department of Licensing is. The number of hours that the licensing office is open is like negligible. You don't have a car. You don't have a way to get there. And Irene's saying, Look, all you got, all you gotta do as a corp- as a government is give them the right exit document in the first place. Give them an ID when they leave prison. What's the matter with you? And the woman said, no, all you have to do is and Irene's going, Oh my God. So that's what ended up that's why she's banging on the wheel. <laughs> yep. Because
1: it was so clear to me that they had worked eight years. A whole big group of people worked eight years in our state government to come up with this plan, which should not even have been in the process of ID for the prisoner getting out. And you should have heard the excuses they had because they couldn't give an ID to so many people. And I said, tell me who's serving someone else's time. Who, who serves somebody else's jail time, prison
2: Can time? I- could I sim- say something, too? I'd like to jump in sure. real hi- right here. This is Shanae. And I just have a little comment. So if they cannot, for whatever reason, issue ID, then how can they call you a property of government while you're incarcerated? Does that make that? that just, it blows my mind. I'm supposed to be property of Department of Corrections of Washington State. However, you can't provide me with a Washington State ID.
0: That's oxymoron. It's totally oxymoron, especially because who was in the jail in the first place? Who is there? Who, ha- who does know who their ID is? And if there's no ID and there's no evidence, I mean, how can they possibly release you? That was so irresponsible, which is why we took this time to write up letters, to go down there, to organize these meetings. And you know what it would have cost at the time to f- solve the problem? 34000 $34,000. That's why we were meeting with the Department of Licensing. That's why we were meeting with the Department of Corrections to solve the problem. $34,000 is all it would take to get the two systems to talk to each other, to produce a product so people, when they get out of prison, could get out safely. And you know and what we were it was costing what? us? It was costing us taxpayers something we were estimating. It was costing us taxpayers maybe two point three or $4 million a year Because the DOC and the Department of Licensing wouldn't do a $34,000 fix. And we talked to the techies from both
1: um, Department of Licensing and Department of Corrections. We talked to the techies and they were the ones that told us that it was a $34,000 one-time fix. That's less than one year in prison for one person. And it is still, I just talked to someone Last week, and he did not have his ID when they when he left. He was he was released with his prison uh, uh, um, offender badge. Yep. And he knew he had a, an ID, but they had just lost it. They couldn't find it. Right. This is crazy. This, this boggles my mind. I ran a, a business with my husband for 20 years. If we had lost the order for one of our people, and then and then we couldn't produce when they came to pick up their stuff. My gosh, we wouldn't have been in business a year. So yep. this this is a this is where I was coming from, and so and what I what I was told by this young third person that that just got out, he says, "Oh, but it's okay, Irene. They're going to mail it to me." And I said, that's great. You have a wife that has an address. What about the person that, that releases homeless? Right. And people say, oh, no, everybody, everybody has a place to go when they get. No, they don't. Yeah. Uh, most of the people, the, at least half of the people I've worked with, have released homeless. So where are you going to send that
0: ID to? Let's do our job first, DLC. And if you're, if you're releasing people with a brand new DLC bread why can't it be a brand new identification card so people can cast checks and function in the world as real human beings? That was just absolutely ridiculous. Get a job or get an apartment. Yeah. Be able to identify
2: who they truly are instead of an offender. The reason, that can I jump in again real quick? sure. Sure. The reason I believe they do that is because of the systemic and generational false belief system that says that you now do not deserve to be a normal human being. You now have, even though you've paid your consequence and paid your dues, you, you have this black, red, or whatever color X on your forehead that says you don't deserve to have an easier life or a normal, quote, normal life because of what you did.
0: Well, that's certainly one of the subliminal belief messages. Now, I want to shift gears for a second because I want to have Debbie speak to this subject um, before she has to leave. And so, Debbie, when you look at the paradoxes and these paradigm shifts and these predicaments, I'd like you to speak to the subject of what is one of the biggest ones that you want to talk about?
3: Thanks, Joy. Uh, you know, as I've been listening to this it, it, time and again, it, what I what I hear, what I feel, and what I see about what our criminal justice system does to people is it dehumanizes them. And to try to bring individuals back from that point is the resources it takes, the time, the, the nurturing, et cetera. I'm thinking specifically about. I got an opportunity to know my former partner who had has uh, mental health issues. I got to know him in a workshop environment before I knew about his um, incarceration history. Before I was more aware of his mental health issues, which I believe in a large part is mental health issues were were the result of trauma, and. I feel blessed that I got to know him in a workshop environment because I didn't have um, the, that, that pre-set uh, view of who he was by what it said about him on a piece of paper. How did we get to where we are with, well, I'm going to answer my own question. It starts with what it says about we are who it says about us on a piece of paper because of our schooling. Mm. This is my report card. Yeah. This is the representation of, of who I am. Oh, I don't do so well in math. Oh, I write my letters backwards. I have a granddaughter doing that right now. She struggles so hard to be like her classmates when just that one issue she knows she doesn't she's a left-hander she struggles she's a precious bright caring she got a she got an award last week for uh student of the day because she's so very kind to her classmates we must value our our citizens as individuals and and Build on their strengths and stop demonizing them for the defi- their deficits, alienating them for their deficits. Um, I don't know how much time I have. I could go on a lot longer.
0: You have a few more minutes. So go ahead and talk to what you found, because once they get that, you know, you were talking about 15 minutes, one thing that happens and in, in, a, in a matter of 15 minutes, your entire world gets flipped upside down, turned upside out, rolled out into public. You're basically punished and a whole system stands against you. And then that issue, that 15 minutes of a mistake gets blown out of context by a system. And then it follows you for the rest of your life. So can you speak to that part?
3: Yes, and I can I I have a, a I witnessed a 15 minutes of my former partner's life that that put him back in jail for violating a restraining order. A person that got a restraining order against him came up into my former partner's face and said you no longer have the right to drive on this, you know, shared access driveway. And, and he was, he was speaking to me, but my partner's right behind me. So this, this incident, so my partner has mental health issues, but he also has ADD. People with ADD have a very difficult time not responding to things. They're impulsive. I believe this person who, who did this to him and to me, knew this and even had his, his roommate around the corner at the fence to be able to witness this. I believe this was done intentionally so that he could antagonize and create more problems. So yes, 15 minutes is all it took for, for this man to get in my face and trigger my partner, former partner who then said, go back to your house, go back. That's all he said. He didn't threaten him. He didn't lay hands on him, but he spoke. He spoke words. He said, go back to your house. How, how can that, those few minutes then so damage another individual's life? It's just mind blowing. It is not, it is not work for people. So what
0: you're, so what you said, let me hear, let me see if I heard you. You have a partner, he's got a problem. There's a restraining order against him by another person who's some kind of a neighbor or something down the street. Right. You're in, the, in your own yard on your own property, not violating any rules. And this guy who actually created the restraining order in the first place comes onto your property, basically attacks you. He resp- your partner responds and says, get off our property. And that became a violation of a restraining order when he'd never lost left the property in the first place and he didn't provoke the confrontation, the original person did. Is that what that, you're saying?
3: Yes, that is exactly what happened. That and exactly-
0: your partner got arrested and put in jail for violating the, the restraining order. Is that true? That's correct. So this is a way that laws and rules and regulations can be misapplied because people who are on the other side of the fence, literally, are mm-hmm. doing things differently. And some of those people are actually playing games with the system. Maybe your neighbor knew what he was doing, maybe he didn't. But the point is, the consequence to somebody who already had a history was out of out of proportion. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Debbie. I know that you may have to leave, but you're welcome to stay. Do you have more to say about that before you sign off? Do you have something else you want to say?
3: Um, Maybe even to, to um, go before this incident happened, because these, my former partner and the man who provoked him um, and, you know, got in my face too. um, They were former roommates, When Ah. the incident happened, they were no longer. And the reason they were no longer roommates was because the man that was, that provoked this incident um, actually laid, he made physical uh, sexual unwanted advances on my former partner, my former partner in self-defense because he laid hands on him. Uh, in a sexual way, pushed him off of him. then the the person that provoked my partner um, called the police because he was pushed. Well, this individual was a member of the Coast Guard auxiliary and had all these plaques on his wall of all of his boy Scout involvement. And when the law enforcement showed up, because my former partner already had a history, and the prison system but this you know man who's got plaques on his wall and is probably known to law enforcement because of his coast guard involvement he didn't get any anything against him for for laying hands in unwanted sexual advance towards my my former partner my former partner went to jail
0: Right. So it's the presumptive bias, not just by the police, but the presumptive bias and the entitlements that certain people have simply because they have a clean history, the other person doesn't. So therefore, it's hard for people inside the system or for police officers on the scene to actually unravel all this stuff in the middle of an incident.
3: Absolutely. And so even though my partner said, hey, this man grabbed me, he grabbed my crotch. You know, that's what he did. Yeah. And the police, so, you know, my former partner didn't have credibility, I'm assuming, because one of the first things they do when sure. you give, tell them your name is they look up your record. Sure. You know, they don't even have the report written yet, but they are they know what your, how much time you spent doing what, where and in, in your prison history. That's horrible bias to me.
0: Yeah. And it happens repeatedly and it's not necessarily... You know, that anyone in the system intends to be biased or prejudiced, it's part of the functioning of a system that isn't taking into account the, the real human problems that we're dealing with. They're going by laws, they're going by rules, they're going by the appearance of, of things not necessarily able to or taking the time to understand the consequences over time. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Debbie. I know that you may have to go. And if you do, thank you for being on the call. And I'd like to move on to asking Sinead, one of the um, disparities and misconceptions or paradoxes or predicaments that you've experienced um, from your time inside the system and living with this, these issues.
2: Oh, sure. Joy. Thanks. Thank you, Debbie, so much for sharing your story. Um, I also have quite a few that I could choose, but one that sticks out the most to me is when I was about 20 years old, I had been uh, addicted to drugs, and I had committed some crimes surrounding that. I wrote a couple bad checks on my own bank account, and I also had uh, been arrested for possession of a controlled substance, and this happened, oh, I don't know, probably in the springtime. And I got appointed a public defender when I got arrested for the possession charge. The public defender offered for me to do drug court, which is a pretty intensive rehabilitation program in lieu of prison time. My prison sentence was supposed to be for three years. They told me that if I could complete drug court, not only would I not have to do that time, but the crimes would be taken off my record. So I thought, okay, I'll do it. During that time, I wasn't really serious about getting to know myself. I just wanted to get out of trouble. And eventually, about 10 months into it, I relapsed using drugs again and chose to turn myself in to go do my prison time. Between the time that I got charged and the time that I went to jail to turn myself in, my son's dad decided not to use a public defender and instead to pay a retainer to an attorney i sat in jail for about 30 days maybe a little less than that and they resentenced sentenced me and check this out i only got sentenced to 90 days so with an attorney my charges got dropped to 90 days without an attorney using a public defender that's appointed to you by law when you're arrested for a crime i would have done three years Wow. So so you tell me, that was my first aha moment that I can stay loaded as long as I have money for a lawyer.
0: (laughs) Wow. All that, that was a real paradigm shifter for your mind. And at what point in your cycle, just out of curiosity, Sinead, when you went from Was that at the beginning of your rehabilitation, at the end of your rehabilitation? Was that before you went to prison for a longer time or was that after you came out?
2: That was in the very beginnings of my dealing seriously with jails and arrests and things like that. That was probably about four years before the last time I was arrested. So So I ran on that. Yeah, I ran on that for quite a few years. As long as I have money for a lawyer and I got one on retainer. I'll only do, what, 30 days, maybe 60 days, whatever, in and out, in and out. And I was arrested over 25 times.
0: Wow. So what you learned from that experience was that you had bargaining chips. And if you had money, you could play the game. And there was no reason to actually do correction, personal correction. Correct. And then let's talk about this because we've got a few more minutes on the call here, even though we, we will have to wrap it here pretty quick. But after all of these subsequent incidences and these arrests and the time in prison, how could at that specific point in time when you were in drug court and you were facing those things, could the system have made a change that could have allowed you in sort of, instead of going into the recycling recidivism game of getting arrested, paying money, playing the game, going back, what could have been done at that choice point in drug court, what could have changed that could have put you on a path to rehabilitation and an exit strategy that actually would have helped you to heal your life, get back on track, and not have to spend all these subsequent years in prison and cost the taxpayers so much money? What could have been done differently?
2: Wow, that's a really, really good question. Looking back, you know, it's hard for me to, to say that, because, uh, what it could have been, only because, you know, in recovery and 12-step programs, they teach you you're not ready till you're ready, right? However, knowing what I know now and doing the work I've done with clients one-on-one, I believe that my drug addiction and my crime and that kind of activity stemmed from my childhood abuse that I was never vindicated of. I was never yeah. validated. I was never given the opportunity to look my, my uh, abusers in the eyes, you know, uh, they didn't talk about any of that. It's what you can do with your drug addiction. This is your problem. This is what you chose to do. It's a lie. It's not because I chose to do it. It's I did it because I was self-medicating due to trauma and abuse and not feeling validated, being abandoned. And here I am. In that moment, 20 years old, had a child already that I didn't have custody of on top of a drug addiction and probably mental health at the time that I was not aware of. And none of those things really mattered. What mattered was getting you clean. As long as you stay clean for a year and a half, we'll sign these charges away. Well, you know what happens in drug court? I've watched it happen. People get it. They get all the way through. They sign their papers and they're out getting loaded. They're in prison the next day or a few weeks or months or whatever. It's not about taking the drugs away. You could take the drugs and alcohol away all you want, but if if I didn't fix those internal soul-shifting problems, nothing else was going to change. So what could have happened inside the system,
0: looking back on it, is that the trauma recovery programs need to be added maybe to drug court or there needs to be, instead of continual drug court the way we were doing it because that's the way people set it up, is to say let's do a different human behavior evaluation of what your problem is and where it comes from and let's see if we can get treatment let's see if you could go to a different recovery facility let's see if we could take you to rehabilitation let's see if we could get you some counseling and coaching that actually would help you not continue to self medicate instead of pretending that it, you can just write it off as a, as a personal behavior problem, like just you're a bad person, actually look at why you're doing what you're doing and help you get help.
2: Right. And to be fair, there were plenty of opportunities for me to do treatment. I went to treatment five times before I went to prison and every treatment center is the same. They focus on talking to you, what the drugs are and what they do to your mind and body, you know, um, try and get you to do 12 steps. And then you want that you're supposed to talk to somebody you don't even know about your past, who you're never going to see again after you leave treatment. You know, it's all these people are being paid to basically babysit you, not really help you heal. You know, it's like, they just want you to be a productive member of society and forgive your past and get over it. Well, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The problem started when I was a child who should be accountable the people who were around, the adults who were around when I was a child should also be held accountable for my actions as an adult. That's how I feel about it.
0: So the one thing that could have helped was actually, instead of the system continuing to try to tell you how to fix the problem according to them, is actually a a kind of discussion or intervention or intercession that allowed you to be in an environment where you could actually confront those people like restorative justice or restorative healing programs or trauma yes. intervention, right? Yes. That's what we've been talking about along the way. Irene wanted to say something, but I, I just want to say, does that make sense to you, Sinead?
2: Absolutely. It should be an all inclusive You can't just treat one person that's part of the problem and put them back in the problem and expect (laughs) them to do better.
0: Right. So what would you like to say about that, Irene?
1: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Shanae. I I just, (laughs) this makes my heart sing when someone (laughs) takes words out of my mouth. I have known forever since I started doing this, um, People do better when they know better. If you had known how to do it earlier, you would have done it, but you didn't know how. So, um, I changed my own life 40 years ago, and I developed a program, The Joyous Discovery of Self, and I was fortunate enough to be able to teach it to Lydia Place women in Bellingham for seven years. And I saw... It was so much fun to watch these women have these aha moments, their mouths drop open, their eyes almost bug out of their head. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, but I can't do that. They can't can't speak what it is they need or they want or they must have in a particular situation because they have no value. They have been traumatized, whatever the, the issues are, and you spoke of your early childhood, and this, these traumas must be healed. Otherwise, the, the person goes on and on and on through their entire lifetime dealing with these old issues that have not been healed, have not been resolved, have not been understood, even just understanding something. you you finally have an awareness, then if you choose, you can change it. And that's what you have done all along the way, Sinead. You've realized things, and the awareness of it allows you then to take the next step. And that's what I know people that have been to treatment three, six, eight times, and they're still addicted to drugs. It's because the base element that causes the addiction has not been Solved or or realized. There's not an awareness of it yet, so they cannot yet come out of it. And and I know every every time someone comes out, I say, "Was it was it helpful? Did you learn something? Oh yeah, yeah, I learned. Well, each time they go to to people go to treatment, they learn something else. But do they have the tools in to implement what they learned once they get out? And that's where. Uh, Restore Life Center will, will be, it, it's just, I can see these wonderful products coming out at the other end, and they'll be, the folks will be functional, maybe so, for the first time in their life.
0: So what I heard was three things. I'm trying to listen as a, as a person who doesn't know what you guys are talking about, okay, as an audience member. And as an audience member, I've been told that recovery programs is the solution. Either prison is the solution or recovery programs is the solution. And if you don't go through the prison system and correct yourself, then you need to go someplace else because you're just a bad person. If you go recovery and you didn't get a fix, then you're a bad person. So they continue to simply condemn you and discard you. Now, what I heard you say differently from a different set of listening ears is that If the program is simply based on judgments and things that are inhumane or based upon rules and regulations or systems or things that are not relevant to helping you deal with the trauma and the human problem that caused the original failure or the misbehavior or the drug abuse, because there's so many people dealing with drug abuse and mental health abuse that are inside the system. What you're saying is, both of you, I think, are saying that we need a humanizing method of being able to help people who are in the system. Mental illness is not, I mean, it starts, I mean, it may be there, but it started because of dysfunction early in life. Addiction started because of dysfunction earlier in life. It's not the drugs or the alcohol that needs to be fixed. It's the trauma and the trauma experience, the reactivity and the deadening of the trauma that we actually need to discuss. Is that sort
2: of accurate? I I would like to say yes, that is partially accurate. How, because I fortunately was able to participate in a behavior modification program while I was incarcerated. Yes. Called the therapeutic community. And what that program did was it allowed you and people people who are in the program to call you on your behaviors that are not self-seeking that were self-sabotaging right like even your language that you use can be self-sabotaging and to know that you have value and you are valuable those are main things that i learned that helped me become who i am today and be a mom and a you know a family member a wife a friend a, you know uh, those are the things and in recovery and treatment centers they don't teach that they teach you to not make friends where while you're there there's no touching there's no hugging there's no supporting or tapping on the back or handing a Kleenex there's none of that so they can teach you all these uh, I want to say like uh, clerical and administrative processes to apply to situations in your life but they don't teach you how to do that you know it, it's just it's a a conundrum to me that you have this prison with 900 women who have all suffered some kind of trauma or abuse, and you're not allowed to make friends, hug, do normal humanity within this environment while you're trying to learn how to live life different.
0: And that's awesome. That distinction is really important because the solution then could be doing some trauma healing programs inside the system. We would have to do certain justice system reform issues, but that behavioral health program is available in prisons. There are other programs that are available in prisons, and what can happen is that the administration of the prisons can put certain things in, legislation can put certain things in place, but then subsequent legislative action takes those solutions out of the budget and it throws people back into a tailspin. So what's important is either to do this recovery program before people go to prison in the prevention phase or in the early jail intervention phase before people go to prison. And then an awareness of our legislators that it's cheaper to solve the problem through these programs than it is to put somebody in prison for life. Because if you put somebody in prison for life for 45 years or at 45 years old and they're going to stay there for 30 years at $75,000 a year or $45,000 a year times 20, let's say just 20 years in life times $40,000, that's you know $800,000 the taxpayers are going to pay in prison time when it could have been fixed with the trauma recovery program either in jail or before jail or before prison. If in fact
1: that is the goal. You and mean- by that I mean I mean the way the prison system is set up is for the mass incarceration industrial complex. So and when, a- you, when you when So when you look at it from a 30,000 foot view it's a different view that, than when you're in it. And I'd like to also say that addiction is caused from trauma. The addiction is only a, a, a coping mechanism to get through the day, to get through life. And when, and, I, and I believe most everyone has some sort of addiction. Mine used to be um, sugar and chocolate. I no longer have the addiction. I've I understand it. I now know how to to circumvent all of that. And uh, but I don't care whether it's gambling, shopping, b- drugs, um, relationships. Sex. Really, absolutely, absolutely. And um, so until you understand why you're doing this, and and get the help for the initial trauma. Then you're going to continue to use, and it's so very clear to me. But unless unless you can see it from a different viewpoint, the system continues to to just grind away
2: and grind our people up in it. Can I say something really fast too? Um, When you were talking, what what that reminded me of is there was this um, mental shift in my perspective as I was going through that behavior modification program in prison, I learned that putting substances into my body and uh, participating in abusive relationships, um, circumstances that were not healthy circumstances, basically what I was doing then was I was giving my power back to my abuser. So every time I pick up a drug or a drink or have a, a bad relationship that I chose to be in, I'm basically allowing my abuser and my trauma to win. And so that was the mind shift that I gained Mm -hmm. to learn that I'm more valuable than that. And I'm not going to let them continue to harm me. Wow. What an amazing comment, Sinead. Yep. Awesome.
1: Congratulations. yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So learning how to see things from different perspectives and recognizing that the goal of a program might be to fulfill the needs of the program, <laughs> like the system works for the system, but it doesn't necessarily work for the humans. And what you're saying, Shanae, is working with the humans to help the humans solve a problem. And Irene, recognizing that addictions and the reason we're self-medicating and doing these crazy things is because we don't know how to do it any other way. So the bottom line right. is education, recovery, rehabilitation the earlier in the sequence of problem we can get it the more taxpayers money we're going to save the better results we're going to have with the humans the less danger we're going to create in the in the families and the children who follow us as leaders and the better quality of parenting we're going to get so it's a win 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 if we do things like prevention intervention trauma healing personal development the better off we are as a community i think that just describes public safety yeah it is absolutely. public safety absolutely That's true. public safety <laughs> yep so thank you both very much for being here and thank you for <laughs> to debbie for being here i know that you're gone and you know this is the way life works things change i'm so excited to have you all be on this call talking with the public and helping them to understand these paradigms, these paradoxes, these contradictions, these predicaments that we find ourselves in in the 21st century. Thank you very much for being on the call. Talk to you later. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info@therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.